all, and welcome to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Expert Series podcast. My name is Allison Schmidt, and I'm the director of the Life Sciences Program at BCLT. So today, Seth Lloyd from Morrison and Forster is joining us for our podcast series, Beyond the Holding, a nuanced look at the Federal Circuit's patents decisions. Thanks so much for joining us, Seth. We're happy to have you back. Yeah, thanks, Allison. Uh, so today we're going to discuss the November 5th uh, Celgene versus Mylan decision that came down from the Federal Circuit. There's a number of issues to unpack here related to venue and pleading standards, and Seth is going to walk us through all of it. But before we dig into the substance of the decision itself, Celgene discusses a type of case that's different from most of the other cases that we've previously discussed on the podcast. So Celgene arose under the Hatch-Waxman Act, which is a complex statutory framework created by Congress with the goal of streamlining approval of generic uh, drug products in the United States and creating a framework for the patent challenges to the brand side company's patents prior to marketing of the generic drug. So Seth, can you walk us through the background of how these Hatch-Waxman cases work so that our listeners can get a sense of how these might be different from the typical patent cases that they're thinking about? Yeah, I'll give it my best shot. You weren't exaggerating when you said complex. It is a complex statutory framework, but I think there are a few key points to understand for today's case. So in general, uh, as you said, when a completely new drug is coming to market, the party files a new drug application or an NDA with the Food and Drug Administration. And to get an NDA approved, there's a long process. The parties have to go through clinical studies and, and go through several rounds, usually with the FDA, to get approval. That tends to be a very lengthy and costly process. And so the Hatch-Waxman Act was designed to allow quicker approval for kind of the follow-on. So parties who want to market a generic form. So basically the same pharmaceutical formula, um, but without going through that lengthy process. And what the Hatch-Waxman Act allows them to do is to submit an abbreviated new drug application or an ANDA, as people in the industry call it. And with the ANDA, they don't have to submit all the, do new clinical trials and submit uh, new data from clinical studies. Instead, they can simply show, prove to the FDA that their drug is bioequivalent to an approved drug. It's the same formula and they can get approval much quicker and with less cost. The part that's going to be relevant to our case today is how does this all work with patents? Because often if somebody's come up with a new drug, they've patented the formula or they've patented a new method for using that drug. Um, and so the, the new drug applicant, the, the NDA filer, will also tell the FDA about any of those patents that cover the drug or methods of using it. And they'll list those patents in what's called the orange book. Now, later, the company that wants to market the generic version comes along, they have to tell the FDA what they intend to do with regard to any patents listed in the orange book. They have different options. One thing they can do is they can tell the FDA, we're seeking marketing approval for this um, generic form of the drug, but we will wait to market the drug until the latest patent that applies to it listed in the orange book expires. That's called a paragraph three certification. And so there, they're just going to wait it out. But often what... Um, companies seeking to market generic drugs will do is they'll file what's called a paragraph four certification. And the paragraph four certification tells the FDA, yes, there's this patent listed that covers the drug in the orange book, but we either don't believe we infringe the patent or we believe that the patent is invalid. Um, and that's called the paragraph four certification. One part of the paragraph four certification, which is important to this case here, is that after submitting the ANDA with the paragraph four certification, the generic drug manufacturer also needs to send a notice to the party who submitted the new drug application. And in that notice, 
the generic drug manufacturer has to give kind of factual and legal basis for asserting non-infringement or invalidity. They need to explain, here's why we think we don't infringe, or here's why we think the patent is invalid. Fantastic. So what happens between the generic submitting the notice letter to the brand company? What actually triggers the litigation? How does that work? Yeah, so the, the notice is kind of one of the key moments for triggering litigation. And, and we talked about kind of patents and, and the FDA, but then how does it get into court? Well, another thing that Congress did with the Hatch-Waxman Act is they created a new act of infringement. This is under 35 USC 271E2, and it defines, it says that submitting an ANDA that seeks to market a drug before its expiration is an artificial act of infringement. So submitting the ANDA itself to the FDA is considered an act of infringement. And when the brand and drug manufacturer receives the, the paragraph four certification notice, that starts the clock if they want to file a suit in district court. So with if they file suit within 45 days of receiving the notice, then they get an automatic 30-month stay from the FDA. So for 30 months after filing the suit, the FDA will not approve uh, the generic drug for marketing. They can choose not to file, um, and then they'll lose their 30-month their exclusivity. And then at that point, the generic drug could either choose to go to market or they can seek declaratory judgment action themselves. Fantastic. Thank you so much for taking what is very complex and making it very straightforward to follow. And I think that's a great lead into the Celgene case itself. So at a high level, what, what's this case about? Yeah, so the, the facts here are Celgene, who's headquartered in New Jersey, markets a cancer drug under the name Pomalist. Mylan Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, a West Virginia company, and some related entities, we'll start with Mylan Pharmaceuticals Incorporated for now, um, submitted an ANDA seeking to market a generic alternative to Pomalist. And Celgene sued in New Jersey, um, alleging infringement by Mylan Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and two related entities, Mylan Inc., which is a Pennsylvania company, and Mylan NV, which is a foreign corporation. The district court ultimately dismissed the case for different reasons, depending on which defendant you're talking about. So for two of the defendants for Mylan Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated in Mylan Inc., the district court dismissed for lack of venue, and then for Mylan NV, the foreign corporation, the district court dismissed for failure to state a claim. Great. So let's wander into the venue questions first, and then we'll circle back around to the pleading questions. So on, under uh, 28 U.S.C. 1400b, so the plaintiff is required to show that the defendant either resides in a particular district or that it's committed acts of infringement and has a regular and established place of business there. And so this is, tends to be a factual question and can have discovery involved. And so can you walk us through how that analysis proceeded here? Yeah, so here the analysis all focused on the second option you said. So there wasn't any allegation that any of the Milan entities resides in New Jersey. Instead, the, the argument was that they committed acts of infringement in New Jersey and have a regular and established place of business there. The background to this case is another federal circuit decision on venue in the Hatch-Waxman context from 2020, and that's the Valiant decision. So in Valiant, there was a dispute about what are the acts of infringement that are relevant for an ANDA case? Is it the, the intended marketing of the drug that's going to come later after approval, in which case usually you know, that marketing and sales are going to happen anywhere in the country, and that would mean venue is could be proper anywhere, or is it? does it need to be based on past acts of infringement, which in the ANDA context is that artificial act of infringement, the submitting of the ANDA itself. And in Valiant, the federal circuit held 
it, it's the past. It can only be based on, in the, in the Hatch-Waxman context, it can only be based on past acts of infringement. So the, the future marketing is ir irrelevant to venue. And instead, for Hatch-Waxman purposes, you have to focus on the submission of the ANDA. Valiant didn't enumerate everything that counts as part of submitting the ANDA, right? No, and that's why this case came about. Valiant adopted that rule. It focused on the submission of the ANDA. It expressly said, we're not spelling out everything that counts as part of submitting the ANDA. And that's what the fight here was about. And so here, the argument that Celgene advanced was that submission of the ANDA at least partly occurred in New Jersey. And Celgene argued basically for a fairly broad interpretation of what counts as submission of the ANDA. They said that venue should be proper for all acts sufficiently related to the ANDA submission. That was the rule that they advanced. Um, and their theory was that we're in New Jersey and we received the notice required under for a paragraph four certification. We received that notice. It was sent to us by the defendants in New Jersey. Therefore, that's an act sufficiently related to the ANDA submission and venue is proper. And the federal circuit said no said that that rule is too broad. And instead, it adopted a narrower rule, which of course will be fought over now going forward. But the narrower rule that the federal circuit adopted is that to count for venue, the act has to be fairly part of the submission, not merely related to in some broader sense. Um, and then under that rule, the question was, you know, was sending the notice, the paragraph four certification notice, was that fairly part of the submission of the ANDA in the court? ultimately said no. It looked at the text and structure of the statute and said the statute kind of separately refers to submission of the ANDA and the notice and said, even though the notice is required by statute, it's actually not part of the ANDA itself. It's never sent to the FDA. The only thing that's sent to the FDA is proof of delivery of the notice, um, but that wasn't enough to, to have the notice count as part of the submission of the ANDA. And so the court said the, the act uh, the artificial act of infringement occurred when the ANDA was submitted, and that was done before the notice letter was ever sent. So it seems like what Celgene is telling us is that venue can't be predicated on where the notice letter is received. It seems like there's a whole host of other things that could still be open, and I assume that that will be the subject of future litigation. So the question is, what does this mean going forward for venue and Hatch-Waxman cases? Is it going to change the way in which, you know, plaintiffs are pursuing suits in particular jurisdictions. What do you think? Well, I, I think it, it certainly narrows the, the potential actions that people can point to. As the court said, you know, now the question is going to be, is it fairly part of the submission, which is, you know, arguably a, a narrower inquiry than what um, Valiant said. Um, but, you know, I, I, the truth of the matter is most of these cases end up in Delaware or New Jersey for a variety of different reasons. One, because that's often where the defendants themselves are headquartered or, um, you know, different facts kind of end up leading cases there. So, so I'm not sure as a practical matter, how many cases that's going to take away from those districts. It will open up kind of further fights about what, what's fairly part of the submission of the ANDA. Sure. And further fights about whether or not you can combine suits for various generic defendants into one overarching litigation. Yeah, for sure. Fantastic. So now that we've talked a little bit about venue, let's switch over and talk about adequacy of pleading. So as you mentioned before, there was another interesting issue that was raised in this decision relating to the pleading requirements for uh, particular defendant entities and ANDA cases. And so here, uh, Selgene, the plaintiff, argued that it had properly stated a claim against the Milan foreign corporate parent 
based on the submission of the ANDA by the U.S. Milan subsidiary. So can you walk us through how the court approached this question? Yeah, yeah. So I like to think of kind of the, the venue question as where does the artificial act of infringement occur? And then the pleading question is who actually commits the artifact at artificial act of infringement or, or who's kind of on the hook for the artificial act of infringement. And uh, as you laid out, you know, the issue here is that the, the ANDA itself was submitted by the domestic corporation who is a subsidiary, a wholly owned subsidiary of the foreign defendant. Um, and it, it was signed, that was one of the factors that the, the court pointed out by only the domestic corporation. Um, but Celgene argued that nevertheless, uh, it was done you know, for the benefit of the, the foreign defendant. The, the court laid out kind of two possibilities of how a claim might be stated against the, the foreign defendant. They said, the question is whether the foreign defendant was actively involved in and directly benefited from the submission of the ANDA, or whether the, the, the domestic filer was acting as the, the foreign defendant's alter ego. Um, and the, the court ultimately concluded on the, on the facts here that neither of those tests were met. The court viewed them as no different from the general allegation that any parent is going to benefit from, you know, the, the, the business activities of a subsidiary that are, you know, in, intended to lead to further profit. And, and that kind of general benefit wasn't enough. And, and in terms of alter ego, the court said that the complaint merely had kind of legal conclusions without plausible facts supporting them. So the, the complaint said things like, Mylan Pharmaceuticals was the alter ego of, N of Mylan NV, the foreign defendant, but there weren't, there weren't facts, you know, that the court said that was the legal conclusion and what you, what's required for actual pleading standards is plausible facts supporting that conclusion. Fantastic. Uh, any big takeaways or take-homes that you want to share with the audience from our, from our conversation and from the case? Yeah, I mean, I think just kind of what we touched on already, right? We've seen now with the, the case last year, Valiant in 2020, now this one, 2021, these fights about venue in the Hatch-Waxman context. And I think, you know, this case provides some further insight and guidance on what's required, but I, I don't think it's the last uh, word at, by any means. And, and we'll see more of these probably going forward. I imagine that you're right. Thank you so much for joining us, Seth. And thank you for the excellent explanation on this complicated case. And thanks to all of you listeners for joining us on the BCLT Expert Series podcast. See you next time.